The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We are back in Amos chapter 6, so if you will turn to Amos, the book of Amos chapter 6. And we are going to be here for the next several weeks, not in Amos 6 per se, but we are going to be in this book until we come to its completion. We took a pause. We started with the book of Amos at the end of the year, hit pause so that we could consider other things that we feel drawn to as the pastors of the church and the way um, we want to shepherd you, and so now we're going to come back into this book. Before we read the Word of God and uh, lay into it so that ultimately God's Word can lay into us, just want to say two things. One is this, for those of you who fasted and prayed um, for the elders uh, in regard to our retreat this past week, and I want to say thank you. Uh, thank you more than you could ever know. Um, part of the work is she- of, the, of being the shepherd is knowing um, the goodness that comes from when the sheep um, pray, pray for those who've been called to, to shepherd the sheep. Um, I've got a real strong sense, and I think the elder team does as well, that we uh, derived the clarity that we went into the weekend seeking. Um, as it relates to um, the direction we think we need to go, the clarity on some things that we believe that we need to start and get better at and some things that we need to continue to fan into flame, especially as it relates to walking as disciples. This past year brought a lot of scorched earth to people. 2020 scorched a lot of folks. Some folks walked out of 2020, though, with a bit of surviving. They were a bit green, and some people were even thriving. They were bearing fruit. And so with that kind of metaphorical language that we pulled right out of Jeremiah chapter 17, that's going to be some language and some thoughts we're going to begin to lay on you in the weeks to come and so we can consider what it looks like to make movement toward being gospel-centered disciples who recognize that we are ministers with a mission field. That's point one, and that rolls right into point two of what I want to say to you. Have you ever considered this question, why am I here this morning? Like literally, why is my rear in the seat listening to a guy talk right now? Why? Why is this the case? I think many of us would answer that question as like, well, that's just what it means to be a Christian. And what we see is that gathering on Sunday morning is the end-all, be-all of what it means to be a Christian. What we want to try to encourage and fan into flame is that a gospel-centered disciple doesn't see Sunday morning merely as the sole point and purpose of my Christianly existence. We are sojourners, to borrow from our language from last week in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are exiles. And this morning, we are many sojourners along the pilgrim way who've stopped into the waypoint, the refueling station, so to speak, of Delta Church on Sunday morning, so that we can turn around and walk right back out as ministers with a mission field. If you dare use this language, as priests with a parish. Pastors who've been called to minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in very particular ways, in the spheres of influence that you find yourself. 
And so what we're going to do this year is begin to lay the firm foundation of what does that look like to help you and help us as pastors consider what does it look like to realize this is just a minor stopping point. This Sunday morning, hour and a half together, is just a minor stopping point refueling station to go back out into the week to live the other six and a half days as a missionary who has been called to live out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, filled by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, glorifying God in every way imaginable, okay? We got some clarity on that, I feel like. And so for those, again, who fasted and on behalf of the elder team. I don't think I'm putting words in their mouth when I say thank you for doing that, okay? Love you guys. Thank you, thank you for supporting us in that way. So, mini sermon one, done. All right? And those of you in the sleepy seats, all right? So turn to Amos chapter six and those of you in the not so sleepy seats, Amos chapter six. So go ahead and stand to your feet. What we want to do is submit ourselves to the word of God now for the next several minutes. This is our aim this morning. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we learn that the words that we are about to read are just not merely the words of a man. They are the words written by a man as he was carried along by the Spirit of the living God. So hear what God has to say to you this morning, saints. Amos 6 verse 1. Woe, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Calneh and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory, O you who put Far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relatives, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him, take up, take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, you who rejoice in low debar, who say, have we not by our own strength 
captured Carnaim for ourselves. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Sermon title this morning is this, Complacent Pride. Complacent Pride. The main idea, I believe, that is lying in front of us in Amos chapter 6 is this, is that God is going to confront his people concerning the sin of complacent pride. This is a sin that is prevalent in the lives of God's people. God is not satisfied with this in the least, and so he's going to confront his people with the sin of complacent pride. Saints, let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of his word, and then we're going to get into the text, okay? Holy Spirit, we need you to come and move in power. Father, would you, would you come and, and grant this? Moving in such a way to where we would hear these words laid before us. Father, I'm asking that you would do right now what so many of us are prone to do when it comes to considering the sin of pride and considering the sin of complacency. Our almost immediate reaction is, this is going to be a great sermon for my, for my spouse. Or this is going to be a great sermon for that person up right down the row here because I really know they need this. Our automatic assumption, Lord, concerning this sin is to assume there is no way whatsoever that it could pertain to me. Pierce our hearts, Lord God, to see that we are guilty so that we might in our guilt turn and find the cleansing and the mercy and the grace that can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name I pray. Amen. When someone is about to turn 16 years old, that usually means they're right on the brink of getting their driver's license. That will also mean that this person, this almost soon-to-be 16-year-old, will have gone through a driver's education course learning what it means to be a defensive driver. Do you guys remember that phrase, going through the rules of the road and all that kind of stuff, being a defensive driver? Now, the reason why we use this phrase, defensive driver, um, is because routine... The monotony of life, the monotony of getting in the car, putting on the seatbelt, grabbing the steering wheel, and just driving the familiar paths that we drive to grocery stores, into places of work or church or whatever it might be, monotony, routine, has a way of breeding complacency into our hearts. At the moment, and the moment that complacency becomes the norm the moment that we let routine dull our senses and slide over into that realm of ease that is usually when harm is just right there waiting for you because you're no longer being alert. You're no longer aware of the dangers that are around you. Therefore, when you get behind the wheel, said your driver's ed teacher, wake up. Don't take it easy. Stop being complacent in that moment. And right now, in Amos chapter 6, this is exactly the very danger 
that this brother prophet is calling the people of God to recognize. You have slipped into ease. You've embraced complacency. Danger is on the horizon, and you're about to reap destruction because complacency fueled by pride is about to lead you to a place that, one, you never could have imagined, and it's about to lead you to a place you do not want to be. Among all the ways that God's people had drifted from God, and we have seen many in Amos chapters 1 through 5. Out of all the ways that God's people have drifted from God, we now learn that it is the sin of complacent pride was right there at the heart of God's people. So what does God do? Knowing this is the condition of the heart of his people, what does God do? In his grace, he sends this prophet And he sends this prophet with a message of woe in order to show the gravity of the situation. Complacent pride, when it rests on the heart of a soul, is no small thing. And so Amos speaks a message that is meant to land on people's hearts, letting them know that you are playing on the brink of the abyss. Therefore, God is confronting them with their sins of self-indulgent ease and their boastful pride. And he's not doing it because he hates them. He's doing it because he loves his people. When God, listen friends, when God exposes sin in our lives, it is always invitational. He is doing it to expose that if you keep traveling this path of sin, it will lead to your destruction and eternal separation from the God who created you. And in love, he says, I'm going to expose that sin through the tone of invitation so that we would turn from that sin and flee to the one in whom our souls were meant and designed to find the infinite pleasure of relationship with him via the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God exposes sin in our lives, it is always invitational. It is him bidding us to come, taste, and see that he is good. It is him calling us to turn from our pursuit of puny, worldly playthings and to embrace him as the everlasting pleasure we were created to enjoy. But what God knows is that complacency and pride are robbers, and they will rob us of these things. They are combatants which wage war against our soul and bring us into the captivity of false security and into the captivity of uncaring ease. So in order to wake his people up, in order to wake us up this morning from the soul-destroying dangers of complacent pride, Amos is sent to expose the peril of complacency. And that's point number one, covering verses one through seven, the peril of complacency, the dangers of complacency. When complacency runs unchecked, it will lead you into dangers. And so that's what he's going to address in verses one through seven. So just look at the language that Amos speaks in verse 1 when he says, Woe, woe, he says, Woe to those who are at, here it is, who are at ease in Zion, complacent in Zion. They are those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house 
of Israel comes. In Amos's day, the ones that were most guilty of being complacent are the leaders. That's what he's addressing there, the notable men. The ones who should not have been complacent, calling people to a humble boasting in the Lord, were happy to be full of themselves and boast in themselves. They are at ease and secure in everything but the Lord God himself. The world is their oyster. They are the notable men, the leaders operating in what they believe to be, notice, the first of the nations. They are, na- there are nations, and in their mindset, then there are nations. And if you were to talk to one of these notable men, one of these leaders, what they would say is, I know that there's nations out there, but they've never met our nation, and our nation is the king of the heap. All nations are puny in in comparison to the country, the nation to which we belong. But what Amos has come to reveal is that this way of thinking is connected to a blinding complacency that is preventing them from seeing the dangers that are lurking right on the horizon. So the question we should ask ourselves is this, what is the root of their complacency? Amos isn't just going to show up and be like, hey, you guys are complacent, and then just drop the mic and walk off. He's going to explain to them the sin behind the sin. Complacent pride that leads you away from God, sin, check. What's the sin behind the sin? What is the heart attitude leading them to embrace complacency? What is the heart of this false security that Amos describes them as having. In short, Amos says it was because of their military conquests and their material wealth. In other words, they were placing their hope, they were resting in ease upon the things of the world. In verse 1, we read that they felt secure on the mountain of Samaria. If you scan down to verse 13, We hear the overflow of their true heart's belief as they rejoice in a military victory. Do you see it there? They say this, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. But the recent military successes led God's people to do the exact opposite as the leaders of God's people slipped into an apathetic ease that was fueled by an inflated view of self. They looked around and they were no longer saying that this victory or this event or these circumstances were solely from God. It was God's goodness in leading us in this way. Something good came, and what they began to say was, well, of course it came. Have you not seen who we are? They look into the mirror. When they get up in the morning, what they love to say is, you're the man. They love to look in the mirror and say, you're the woman. They have a self-inflated view of themselves. And brothers and sisters, when we begin to adopt a self-inflated view of the person in the mirror, this is a surefire path that will lead you 
down the peril of complacency. This is one peril of complacency. This sin will lead nations. This sin of complacency will lead a church. This sin of complacency will lead an individual into a blinded sense of their own superiority. It will lead a nation to believe and say things like this, we are the greatest nation in the world. It will lead a church to believe we are the only church in town doing it right. It will lead individuals into a smug self-approval that is forever looking down its noses at other people. And Amos strikes at the heart of this self-satisfied ease with a piercing question in verse 2. He says, listen, go over and look at the nation of Calneh. Go and see them. And then once you've seen them, go down to Hamath, another kingdom that was surrounding them. Then once you're done, go down to the southern end of your guy's nation, down to Gath, that city there among the Philistines. And notice the question he asked them, are you better than these kingdoms? Are you better than these kingdoms? Are you better The implied answer through Amos is that as he asked this to the leaders, they would have looked right back at Amos and said through the lens of their me-first attitude, yes, we are better. Now, is it wrong for you to be proud of the nation from from where you come? Of course not. Is it wrong to really enjoy your church? Of course it's not wrong. Is it wrong to be pleased when an accomplishment comes to a conclusion in a satisfying way because you worked hard and you accomplished a task? Is it wrong to be, to be satisfied with that? Of course it's not wrong. But hear this, brothers and sisters. It's not wrong only so far as our sense of boasting leads us to ultimately boast in the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 are your homework for today to go and understand what a biblical view of boasting ought to look like. But where our self-inflated boasting solely terminates in us where our self-inflated boasting solely terminates in our church when it solely terminates in our nation then we are living with a vision that is too narrow as we attempt to squeeze God and his eternal kingdom into one of our puny little boxes instead of realizing that life under the rule and the reign of the heavenly king is designed to stretch us beyond ourselves in humble wholehearted reliance upon him or if you want to say it another way when complacent pride settles into the fiber of our soul, what we will do is we are sowing seeds of disaster. But here's the thing about complacency, saints. Complacency blinds us to the very seeds of disaster that we're sowing. Look at what he says there in verse 3. At ease in Zion and secure in Samaria, God's people put far away the day of disaster, he says. They put it far away. When you are complacent, you are convinced no danger is coming. 
When you're smug and prideful, you don't think anything wrong is going to happen to you. And he says that's exactly where they are as God's people. At ease and secure, they're putting far away the day of disaster like an anesthetic, complacency, and self-approval had numbed them into believing that a future day of judgment was never going to come for them. False security and worldly things had lulled them into an apathetic ease concerned only with the here and now. They had forgot that the only security worth having is being found to be rich towards God. That is, according to Jesus' own words in Luke 12, being rich towards God by having a personal saving faith in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that's the kind of security that you want to make sure that you have. Every other security is ultimately no ultimate security. But what had become apparent was their total lack of concern to be rich towards God. They had no concern to be rich towards God as they were consumed with the concern only for themselves. And that's exactly what you see in verses 4 through 7. And it was this self-regarding that led to a careless disregard for others. Complacency will be intimately tied to an inflated view of self. When you, when you think, I am the one, it's a me-first attitude, you will begin to become complacent and smug and self-approving, and you will not eventually give a care at all for others. That's how these two things are being stitched together. He says, you guys are full of yourselves. And you're happy that you're full of yourselves. That's why you're at ease and secure in all the wrong things. And he says, furthermore, how I know that you guys are complacent and secure and at ease in the wrong things is you have an absolute, utter, careless disregard for those who are around you. Just look at verses 4 through 6. It describes the lavish lifestyle of just complete self-concern. There was an obsession with luxury and fine feasting. That's verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, stretch themselves on their couches, they're eating the finest foods. Verse 5, they were inordinately concerned with entertainment. It's not wrong to enjoy entertainment, but to be inordinately concerned with entertainment will lead you to have a careless disregard for others, singing idle songs to the sound of the harp, inventing for themselves the instruments of music. The same could be said for, their over, for the overindulgence of their cravings. There, verse 6, as those who drink wine by the bowlfuls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. When you stitch verses 4, 5, and 6 together, what you find is this, the satisfaction of their appetites was their God. If they had a craving, I'm going to bow down before the God of pleasure. And if this action will bring the pleasure that I desire and it will scratch the itch of my craving, then I will do whatever I need to do to worship the pursuit of scratching that itch, so to speak. And the kicker was they had become so obsessed with the complacent pursuit of self-satisfaction that, that they did not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. In other words, the leaders were so consumed with these things, those around them, their worlds were caving in on them, 
And they just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, you know, that's just sort of the way life works for those poor folk, those oppressed folk. They didn't grieve at all. The seeds of complacent ease had borne the fruit of careless concern. And they were so blinded by their complacency that they didn't see in verse 7 that their nation was doomed and that the party would eventually end. They might have been first in the Congo lines at all their parties, but what they didn't realize is that they would also then be the first ones to walk out of their country being hauled off in exile. If you want to reach into the New Testament and pull forward what was going on at the level of the heart, the Apostle Paul said they fit the description that he gave in Philippians chapter 3 where he said those people have their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That is, 2 Timothy chapter 3, they were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The haunting refrain that should be echoing in your ears right now is the question that you read in verse 6, saints. It's the question, are you not grieved? Are you not grieved? Listen, friends. The sin of complacency is a hardening agent. And when complacency grips a nation, it will be marked by calcified indifference to the concerns of others and other nations. A complacent church will cry no tears over their hard-hearted rebellion. The complacent individual will see no need for repentance. All this and more is why you and I must ask ourselves the question, Am I carelessly at ease? Am I carelessly at ease? Are there areas of my life marked by complacent indifference? Am I happy to do the things that I'm doing but then see someone, someplace, who could use help in some way and just sort of shrug your shoulders and be like, well, that's just sort of the way it goes for those kinds of folk. Does your heart break when you see nations entrenched in a calcified indifference to the concerns of others? Does it see your heart break when the nation in which you live finds itself in that way? Does it grieve you, saints, to see churches of the living God who find themselves crying no tears over their hard-hearted rebellion? Does it grieve you when you see individuals walking in sin with no need for repentance? Friends, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I carelessly at ease? Are there areas of my life marked by complacent indifference? We must fight for an answer to this question because the problem with complacency is that complacent people don't ever think themselves to be complacent. Complacent churches don't ever think they're complacent. Complacent nations don't ever think they are smug and self-approving. Smug Self-approving ease is like a booger that's caught on the edge of your nose. It's gross. Everyone sees it except for you. 
Complacency is always somebody else's problem. It's never your own. But there you are with this ugly thing that everyone can see, and they're like, ooh, that's gross. That person is completely smug, self-approving, prideful, filled full of themselves. And then someone loves them enough to go and be the hands and the feet and the words of Jesus to try to show them the better Jesus path, calling them to repent of that sin. And that is the hardness of the sin of complacency because someone's like, I think you're sort of being complacent. I see evidence in your life of smug self-approval and the self-approving smug person smugly disapproves you because they're complacent. And they're blinded by the danger of that sin which has caught them. Friends, at least one area where the peril of complacency can go unnoticed is as it relates to gathering together as a church, just like you and I are doing right now this morning. Perhaps you could say that you enjoy the luxury of being in a sound church. Perhaps you could say you enjoy the luxury of enjoying fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ at this church. Perhaps you could even go so far as to say that I enjoy the luxury of being in a church and enjoy the teaching that is going on in this church. But the question is, has these things set you at ease? Wow, what do you mean by that? How do I know I've been set at ease? You will know that you have drifted into a place of complacent ease when the sole point of your Christian walk is to go to church, soak up a little Jesus, walk home, and say that Jesus thing has been checked off the list for the next six and a half days. I'm going to do me, me first, smugly self-approving, walking how I want to walk, living how I want to live, talking how I want to talk, acting how I want to act, so that next week from 10 to noon on Sunday morning, you can smugly slip into the seats, get your Jesus itch scratched, and then walk right out the door and go on the way. Now, it's hard to say things like that to us because some of us right now might be in that place, but you're like, that ain't me. And our smug complacency is even blinding us to these things right now. Has that made you at ease? Are you enjoying this gracious gift of a church that has sound teaching, a church that enjoys the fellowship, but has it lulled you? Has it rocked you asleep? Has it led you to the place where you fail to realize that your responsibility to Christ, your responsibility to His church, your responsibility to the lost world is to go as a gospel-proclaiming disciple into a world that needs to hear about Jesus? So do you see why I said the second thing that I said before we started the sermon this morning? We can be rocked to sleep that I am firing in all cylinders as a Christian if I'm just getting myself to church from 10 to noon on a Sunday. But that is not what the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to, saints. There is a better way, a more joy-filled way, a more pleasured way of walking in obedience to the King, recognizing this is just a waypoint on the pilgrim trail as a sojourner and an exile whose ultimate citizenship is tied to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I'm gathering with the saints so we can confess our sins together and be reminded of the gospel together and elevate Christ in song together and pray together, look to Christ in the word together so we can walk out the door together and go our separate ways and 
into our different spheres of influences, into our different places of work, and saying, that fueled me for the mission. And then you're going to come back next week, sort of sputtering in on E, some of us, and then we're going to sit down, and we're going to again re-encourage, we're going to again refuel. But the point of being a disciple that walks in the manner of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is to realize that sin-fighting, complacent-fighting, pride-fighting looks like this. Come in and recognize that could very easily be me. That's the first step. It's just recognizing there might just be a dark corner of my heart where that sin is lurking. And it's a sermon like this from a man like Amos that can call that out into the light. Now, some of you are looking down at your Bible and you recognize we've only made it halfway through the chapter and you're getting freaked a little bit, okay? The back half of the chapter is going to go a lot quicker, all right? So point number two, the fall of the proud, verses 8 through 14. That's point number two. There's two points this morning. Peril of complacency, number two, fall of the proud. Just look at how the Lord God, our living God, notice what he says starting in verse 8, with the full force of who he is. The full force of who he is. The Lord God solemnly swears by himself. He doesn't say, I'm going to get this thing done, and I swear on that thing out there. He says, this thing is going to get done, and I'm telling you it's going to get done, as he solemnly swears by himself. All that the Lord is stands behind what he's about to say. And notice what he says. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. The arrogant and idolatrous self-satisfaction which Amos has already exposed, he sets it right down squarely at the feet of pride. Do you see it right there in verse 8? I abhor the, there it is, pride of Jacob. What we can say is that pride is a kind of idolatry because of what idolatry is. If idolatry involves putting something or someone into God's rightful place, then pride is certainly idolatry. Where humility is depending on God, pride is depending totally and entirely on something else besides God. In the words of an old preacher, the human heart is an idol factory. So whether it be one's nation or one's church that takes the place of God, whether it's one's insurance policies, their bank accounts, their job or their home that takes the place of God, all of us are far too familiar with knowing the sin of pride as we've said, no thank you God, I'm going to set you off the throne and I'm going to put in your rightful place fill in the blank. Ultimately, the sin of pride is thievery because it seeks to steal God's glory and give glory that is solely due to him to something that is lesser. And one of God's commands to his creation is the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, and that is especially true as it relates to the thieving and the robbing of God's glory. But glory robbers is what God's people had become. They had become glory robbers. And in their complacent rebellion, judgment was to come. Verse 8, cities were going to fall. Verses 9 through 10, Whole households are going to be wiped out. Verse 11, houses great and small are going to be struck down. It's a picture of complete and total destruction that is coming as the just reward for a heart of a nation and hearts of individuals that are in love with self, don't give a care about others, and are going to run in complacent ease. Notice in verse 11 that the guarantee upon Amos' lips is that it will all happen at the Lord's command. Who is doing this should be the question. 
Is this just sort of happening by happenstance? He says, no, the Lord is going to do this. Add to it all, Israel had so perverted her system of justice and her standards of righteousness that Israelite society became just as dangerous to the people as rocky terrain was to a horse or to an oxen. So instead of life-giving, justice has now been turned into poison. Righteousness, which should taste sweet like a fruit, was now bitter and taste like wormwood. And now their vainglorious boasting would result in the God of heaven's armies raising up against them a nation who would oppress them from one end of the country to the other. Boom. Sermon over. That's the end of Amos 6. Sermon done. So saints, ask yourself, think about these things. I love what one brother said when he laid down this challenge. Listen, only, only a couple more things to say. I need, I need you to listen. I think this is important for some of us here this morning. Listen, the complacent soul wants to be stoked. The smug soul wants to be tickled. And those at ease in Zion prefer to hear soothing lies rather than disturbing truths. Ever found yourself in that place before? Hoping someone would feed you a soothing lie so you could just feel good about yourself and you were repulsed by the person who came and told you the disturbing truth? Amos is not stroking them. He's not tickling them. He's not just saying, guys, I know you're complacent, but a little bit of complacency doesn't really hurt anybody, you know, and he's just petting them and then sending them along their way. No, he's not going to feed them a soothing lie by God's grace, he's going to feed them the disturbing truth. And that's exactly where it lands and how it lands on us today. But listen, the problem, but the problem is that the wide path that leads to eternal destruction is paved with soothing lies. It's the narrow path, friends, the narrow path with disturbing truths that awaken us to our need for King Jesus and the salvation that we find in him. These are the things that path and pave the way to eternal life. This is why Jesus said what he said in Matthew chapter 7, enter by the narrow gate. Do you remember this, end of the Sermon on the Mount? Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few, he says. So is it true that Amos 6 speaks of judgment? Yes, it does. Is it true that Amos 6 speaks disturbing truths? Yes, it is. Is it true that Amos chapter 6 is an invitation to come and receive the grace and the mercy of a God who loves? Yes, it is. Remember these words of Amos 6. Remember their purpose. Their purpose is to wake us up so that we might turn from sin and turn to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. In other words, listen, Amos 6 is a call. It's an invitation. Won't you come to Jesus right now? Won't you turn from complacent pride, turn from your sin, and come, come to the one who died on the cross so that you would not have to walk the wide path that leads to eternal destruction, but you can enter through the narrow gate of the Lord Jesus Christ and know eternal life? That invitation is woven in throughout 
Amos chapter 6 this morning. I remember one time when I was in the military several years ago, and this one particular time that I was able to have the opportunity to share Jesus as the only way of salvation with this one guy I was in the military with. And I'm telling you about this time because of the, what, what he said in that moment. So we're on deployment, we're about ready to go somewhere, and we're doing various things. We find ourselves talking about Jesus in that moment and our need to repent and to believe in him in, in essence. And he listened, and he was free to care and to chat. Um, it, he wasn't like immediately repulsed, but he wasn't like on his knees begging, what must I do to be saved? And so we just kept having the conversation. He eventually comes to the point at the end of the conversation, and I'll just never remember what he said. He said like basically this, John, I, these things that you're saying sound good, but basically uh, I want to still drink a lot. I still want to do uh, the things that I like to do. The things that you're saying are our sin, because they are opposed to, to, to Christ. And so here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going just to live my life the way I'd like to live my life. And then what I will do is just like right when I'm on my deathbed, I'm just going to, in those last couple moments, throw up a prayer to the heavens, ask Jesus to save me right before I die, and then I'm just going to squeak right into to the gates of heaven is basically, basically how he put it. And you've heard me say this before, is that we are not guaranteed to be able to do that by tomorrow. There's a lot of people who are like, that Jesus thing that that guy keeps talking about, that's really good, but I'm going to deal with that tomorrow. The thing is, you're going to wake up and tomorrow is just yet another day out because tomorrow has become today. You've heard me say this before. One of the greatest phrases the enemy loves to speak, the enemy of your soul wants to convince you of tomorrow because he knows that tomorrow is never going to come. There eventually came a day for the people of Israel who, verse 3, kept putting far away the day of disaster so they could live in the moment now. So they'd wake up tomorrow and live in the moment now and the day of disaster. They kept putting it away. But what they didn't realize is that each day they woke up Running after ease, the day of disaster was coming closer to them. And there eventually came a day, historically speaking, 40 years from about when this happened, when there was no chance for a tomorrow. The judgment and the destruction of running after sin landed right in their doorsteps and they were gone. And so my question for you is this don't be Israel. Are you going to be Israel? Eventually for Israel, there came a day that was too late. So are you at ease in Zion? Are you secure in everything but Christ? My encouragement is, brother, sister, man, woman, child, don't delay. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Jesus, our sole aim in saying these things, as always, is to bring you maximum glory, maximum honor. Our sole purpose is to magnify your power to save, and so that's what I'm asking you to do. Father, there's probably a whole range of places, people, life experiences that are sitting right in front of me, but the common denominator amongst us all the thread that ties all our hearts together is every single one of us were sinners that needed to be saved. Some of us know that salvation, some of us here don't. And so I'm asking you, Lord God, to, to draw hearts.
draw hearts, lead people to see if they are at ease to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ knowing that they'll find forgiveness for their sin. Lead people who might need to make that first initial confession